So if you have a Bible, I hope that you will open it to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. And I want to I wanna tell you a little something as we get started here about my childhood that I think some of you can relate to. Um, maybe not all of you, but probably a lot of you can. And that is, I, I look back on my childhood and I realize that in many ways, it's almost like my childhood and growing up was a quest to prove that I was different than everybody else, different in a better way. Um, trying to show that there was something distinctive about me, something that set me above the crowd, something that, man, I wasn't just one of the pile. I was, I was somebody. Um, the first thing that I chose uh, early on, like many guys, is I chose athletic prowess. I thought that that would distinguish me from everybody else. And I appreciate you not laughing out loud when I, when I said that. But um, it started early, fifth grade. I remember we had a, a, a list in fifth grade where we ranked the kickball players, and I wanted to be at the top of that list. Um, when I got into ninth grade, I, I played basketball, and I thought um, it actually worked out well for me for a while because, uh, for whatever reason, I grew fairly quickly. And uh, so in ninth grade, I was as tall as I am right now, which meant that I was one of the taller guys in the grade. And so uh, I, I played basketball. I dominated. Um, and I was captain of our team, and I thought I had a bright and illustrious career ahead of me on the basketball court. Well, over the next four years, all the guys that I was taller than became taller than me, and um, it was all the guys that I used to be better on the court started to totally dominate me. And uh, so I gave up any, any ambitions of being um, a basketball star. In fact, I was talking to Tyler Zeller, which he's the, uh, you know, the, the seven-foot-one center for UNC Chapel Hill. And I was telling him that story, and uh, I was like, that never really happened to you. He said, no, it sure didn't. I was the guy that grew up and started to dominate everyone in my high school. So, um, but for me, I, I gave up on that idea of trying to distinguish myself athletically, but it just shifted into something else. I, in the 11th grade, I figured out that I had some academic talent. And so I was like, well, that's how I'll distinguish myself. I'll just, you know, I'll get better grades and, and maybe that's where I'm going to put everything. And that's how I'll set myself apart. Um, in, in the 11th grade, it was this um, announcement went out through the school that uh, during sixth period, they were, you could get out of sixth period if you came and participated in the school spelling bee. Um, well, I mean, I was for anything that got me out of sixth period because it was English lit. So I was like, yeah, let's go. Me and several of my friends went. Uh, I get in that room and like my competitive juices start flowing and I just lost all presence of mind and I won the spelling bee. You say, well, what's so bad about that? Because the teacher comes up to me afterwards and says, congratulations, you get to represent our school at the state spelling bee. Now, you know that there's no guy anywhere that that's a good image for. And I was like, no, 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 no. No, I mean, give me another word, K-A-T-T. I, I, I'm not your guy. And uh, she said, no, you get to do it. But, 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 but I started to figure out that, you know, hey, if I applied myself, maybe I could distinguish myself academically. And so I got into college and seminary and, and things, I mean, you know, things shifted, but it was always the same. I was looking for something. In seminary, it was, you know, who could, could argue Calvinism and Arminianism better, who was the, the best theologian, who could preach uh, better, who had the, the biggest offers to go different places and preach. And it's always been something, y'all, to try to show that I was set apart from the crowd. Maybe you can relate to that somewhat, even those of you that are not type A, that's in your life, there's, you've been looking for something to distinguish you. What I want to try to show you from this Bible passage this morning as we're studying the life of David is I want to try to help you embrace your ordinariness. I'm going to try to help you embrace your ordinariness and to see that it is your ordinariness that is the thing that God will most likely use to reveal himself and his power through. I want you to embrace that. Now, let me go ahead and tell you this. This is going to be, for many of you, a little counterintuitive because it's completely countercultural. Um, you, if you grew up in America, which not everybody here in this congregation did, I realize, but for those of you that grew up in America, you have been pumped full pump full of a completely opposite truth than the one I'm going to show you from God's word today. 
I mean, it's become so much a part of your fabric that you probably don't even recognize it. Those are the most dangerous cultural lies that we believe are the ones we don't even know that we've, we've just breathed in since the time we were kids because our parents taught them to us and Sesame Street taught them to us and Oprah taught them to us and, and, and we just, it's become part of who we are. And so this is going to be offensive to some of you. It's going to be surprising. You're going to be like, what? You know, no, you can't say that. I'm going to get emails. I've gotten all kinds of feedback from, from last night already. So, so I'm aware of that. But God's word, this truth is important, and it offends Americans. And praise God for that, because I'm a recovering American on a number of fronts, okay? And this is one of them. I love the United States, and I love being an American, but God's word has something to say to all of us. So 1 Samuel chapter 16, 1 Samuel 16, just so you know where we are, we're studying the life of David, right? 1 Samuel, by the way, 1 Samuel 16, you know where that is? By the end of the series, I want you to know where 1 Samuel is. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. All right, 1 Samuel 16, uh, you try to be finding it while I'm, I'm telling you what's going on. David, we're studying the life of David, and the story of David is Israel's search for a king. And over the last several weeks, what we've looked at is how, just like Israel was searching for a king, each of us is searching for a king, and hopefully in the story of Israel, we've seen that what we are searching for a king is very similar to what they were searching for, and we have seen that God is the only one who can be that king to us. Today, 1 Samuel 16, we're going to take a slightly different angle on this whole thing because we're going to talk about what God is looking for in a king and how God goes about choosing a king and what God is looking for and how he goes about making and crafting that king after he chooses them. So we're going to shift. Up to now, we've been looking at how we are searching for a king. Now we're going to look at what God is looking for in that king. 1 Samuel chapter 16 is where we're going to begin. Here's what happened last week, in case you missed it. Give you a little two-minute recap. This is the, you know, like previously on Lost. This is what happened. Samuel is completely and totally heartbroken and in deep distress because of the sin of Saul. Because Saul turned out to be nothing like what Samuel had hoped. Samuel had this vision of a king that was given to him by his mother Hannah, of a king who would love God, would love the people, love righteousness. This would be a people who obeyed God fully and taught the people to obey God. This would be a people, a king who served the people, who would put their interest above his, who would promote equity and justice and lift up the poor. Um, this would be a king that did not have to command the allegiance of the people. This would be a king who would just win their allegiance. They would be willing to die for him because they could see that he was willing to die for them. Well, as we saw last week, uh, Saul turned out to be none of those things. Saul turned out to be faithful only to himself. And so Samuel in chapter 16 is really depressed. They're depressed like if you found out, you know, if you were engaged and found out uh, on the week that you were about to get married that that person you were engaged to was not at all who you thought they were. They were complete and total fraud. That kind of heartbroken sense is what Samuel has coming into chapter 16 because he had such high hopes for Saul. This is it. This is the king. And Saul just turns out to shatter all those hopes. Chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord then said to Samuel, Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? Since I've rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. And I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a, a new king, a new king from among his sons. And Samuel said, but how can I go? If monument boy hears it, he's going to kill me. And you remember like Saul, right? He's the guy that's so jealous about his name and his glory and, and promoting his kingdom. And he hears I'm coming to Bethlehem and I'm going to choose another king. He will have me slaughtered. And the Lord said, tell you what, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. I, I laugh a little bit because that's a little shady, is it not? 
right? I mean, God's like, hey, I tell you what, go there and tell them you've come to sacrifice. And then while you're at the sacrifice, you may or may not choose another king. Who knows? We'll just see how, how, how it plays out. Uh, that's what he tells them to do. And that's what Samuel does. Samuel did what the Lord commanded, came to Bethlehem. Here's what's going on, all right? So Samuel is going to Bethlehem to offer a ritual sacrifice. While he's there, we know that he's got another agenda. The way the ritual sacrifice would work is all of the village would come together at the place wherever the village gathered, maybe like a football stadium or whatever they had in those days, a sheep racing arena, however they did it. They would come together like in the big grandstands, and they would offer this sacrifice in front of everybody. And what Samuel has been told by God is make sure that Jesse and all of his sons are at that sacrifice. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem. And I love this next verse. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? Samuel is the Chuck Norris of the ancient Israel. And you get this image of like a scene in the Old West where the, the elders of the city come out and they're shaking and they're like, do you come peaceably? Because they remember the whole, you know, hack Agag into pieces thing. Um, I mean, they, they, they remember that, and they're like, you know, are, are you come peaceably, or did you come the whoop tail? And Samuel's like, no, I, took, I come peaceably. I mean, Samuel is, he's the Jack Bauer, he's the Chuck Norris. They, you know, the little kids had action figures of Samuel. They wanted to grow up to be Samuel. The old men told jokes about him, like the Chuck Norris jokes, like, you know, Samuel didn't wet the bed as a kid, the bed wet itself out of fear. You know, they're, they're, they're kind of, you familiar with, nobody, okay? Samuel, Samuel doesn't churn butter, he just roundhouse kicks the cow and butter comes out. You know, those kind of statements is what Samuel had he's he, he's that kind of individual I love that prophet of God and Chuck Norris and so he says I come peaceably I've come to sacrifice to the Lord consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice and he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice consecration was when you would offer yourself publicly in front of the village in front of everybody you would come forward in front of those grandstands and you would give your offering to God and you would indicate that you belong to God's people and so imagine what it was like that day when word suddenly leaked out that this is more than a sacrifice. Samuel is actually looking to choose a king. And imagine the excitement in Jesse's family among these sons as word spread through them that one of them is going to be king. So they're all, you know, they're about to go up in front and consecrate themselves. And they know they're being watched. This is like an American Idol thing. And they got a Simon Cow out there who's going to tell them whether or not they're king. And so they're trying to look all kingly and, and, and walk like a king. I don't even know what that looks like, but that's what's happening. Right? And the first one to walk out is the oldest son. His name is Eliab. And he's got his best king strut going on. Here he comes. He's walking. He is a, he's tall, verse 6. He's good looking. He's got a commanding presence. He's got a deep voice. And verse 6, Samuel said, surely this is the one. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. That's a king if I ever saw one. Now where have you heard that before? Where have you heard that? Come on, Samuel. I mean, really, you're going to go repeat the same mistake? The Lord said to Samuel, no, no, do not look on the appearance or the height of his stature. Don't you remember Saul? For I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord, you see, looks on, on the heart. You ought to write that down. If you underline stuff in your Bible, underline that phrase because that's the heart of the whole thing. God does not ever look at what we look at. He looks at the heart. He never looks at what we spend so much time obsessed over. He looks where? Where? Point to it. Where does he look? The rest of you point to it. Where does he look? He looks at the heart. He looks at the heart. God never looks at somebody who's like, whoa, dude, sweet body. You know, nice haircut. Awesome resident. How much did you make last year? Dude, that's an unbelievable car. Where did you? He never looks at those things. He looks at the heart. Question. 
Is that good news or bad news for you? Good news or bad news? Both of you are right. <laughs> it's good news and bad news. It's good news on one sense because some of you have spent your whole life obsessed with and stressed about becoming something that God is telling you is not important to him at all. Your whole life you've been trying to become something and God's like, That's, I'm not really into that. That's good news. The bad news is, who in here would stand up and say, yeah, I got the kind of heart that God is looking for? You see, here's a question you ought to ask yourself. How much time do you spend on the development of that heart as opposed to the development of all the things in the exterior? Let me ask you girls a question. I don't mean pick on the girls because guys are like this too, but you girls, if you spent as much time on the exterior as you spent on developing your heart, what would your exterior look like? Because you spend the equivalent of all day stuffing fatty foods into your spirit and your soul. You never exercise it, never work it out, give no real thought to it. What would happen if you treated the outside like that? What would happen if your resume, the resume you were trying to develop, you put the same effort into it that you put into developing your heart? You see, that, that actually makes you ask another question, and that is, whose opinion do you care about anyway? Because if you're more focused on what you look like and, and what you wear and, and how your hair is and, and, and everything about you and your resume, that shows you that you had a deeper issue, and that is you care more about what people think than you care about what God thinks. So I'm not just trying to smack you in the face and say, pay attention to your heart. I'm trying to ask you, who do you really care about? Because you know God looks at the heart. But how many of us are so much more focused on the exterior and how in shape our body is and what our resume looks like than we are the heart? Samuel should have known that. Samuel went through this with Saul. By the way, it's a good thing that Eliab's not chosen to be king because you're going to find out in the next chapter that Eliab is critical, he is arrogant, he is fearful, he does not trust God. He would have made a terrible king. So God says, I see that in his spirit, and he rejects him. Verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab, the second son, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, well, neither has the Lord chosen this one. That guy should have been rejected just for his name. That doesn't roll off the tongue, King Abinadab. Move. No, it's, it's, it's bad. It doesn't, doesn't roll like Saul or David. Verse 9. Then Jesse made Shamu pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one, because he looks like a whale. All right? Verse 10. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. This is like a bad Cinderella movie. You know, everybody's coming in trying to shove their foot in the little glass slipper. And nobody works. Nothing works. Verse 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? It's kind of a dumb question, isn't it? Did you forget about any of your kids? And Jesse's like, oh yeah. There's another one. There's another one. But he's out with the sheep. He is... Remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. The word youngest, by the way, there is the Hebrew word hakaton, which scholars tell us when it's used here in this context gives the connotation of the runt. He's physically unimpressive. He's skinny. He's kind of, God had to run around the shower to get wet. He hula hooped with a cheerio. I mean, he's just not, he doesn't look kingly. And he's keeping the sheep, which is the worst job that you could have in Israel. It's shameful slaves social rejects they're the ones who were shepherds because it required no skill set at all the point that is being made here is that david has nothing nothing that would make him be considered to be king i mean he's not even thought about by his own dad he forgot about david i mean, you, I mean it's bad when your dad is like that if there were eight brothers in the room he is the last guy that you would ever think that's a king when his brothers were divided up for dodgeball, David was the kid. They're like, we had David this time. You gotta, last time, you got to take him this time. David is not your guy. Samuel says to Jesse, I love this, well, send and get him. 
and we're not going to sit down until he gets here. Does Samuel strike you as kind of ornery a little bit? I mean, first of all, the whole hack agag to pieces thing should have set you off. But then here's Samuel who's like, you know, um, all right, I swear. How many of your sons did I ask you to bring, Jesse? How many? That's right, all of them. You brought seven. Fine, go get him. And we're just going to stand here. We're not even going to sit down. We're not going to eat. We're just going to stand here and wait. Some guy goes tearing across the field to go find David, you know, out there through the mountains trying to find, David, you got to come. Everybody's waiting on you. He's like, whoa, 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 what the sheep? Don't worry about the sheep. You know, Samuel wants you. So he goes tearing back in there, runs into there, verse 12. Now he was ruddy, and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome, ruddy. Some, some scholars say that this Hebrew word means that he was red-haired or, or freckled. Others say, no, it doesn't mean that. It means that he was disheveled. He was tanned. He smelled like the pasture. He was dirty. How one Hebrew word can mean either of those things, I have no idea. All right? but, but, but he was ruddy and he had pretty eyes. The point is, he doesn't look like a king. He doesn't look like a man of war. He looks like a little runt kid with a baby face. He's Justin Bieber. All right? He's a Jonas brother. That's, that's, that's who he is. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. David, we would later learn, though thoroughly unimpressive on the outside, was a man after God's own heart. Verse 13, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now, as we look into this passage, there are four things that I see that are countercultural for us. Here they are, and I would encourage you to write them down. Number one, David was ordinary. David was ordinary. David was That is the whole point of this story. You say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. But didn't David's life turn out to be anything but ordinary? I mean, the whole David and Goliath thing, that's not ordinary. In fact, he wrote a bunch of songs that we sing 3,000 years later. That's not ordinary. In fact, he became the greatest king in Israel, the standard by which all other kings would be, 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 be judged from there. That's not ordinary. That's extraordinary. Yes. But those things, watch, were all the result of verse 13, not the cause. That was the result of the Spirit of God coming on David. In fact, at the point the Spirit of God came on him, there was nothing extraordinary about him. In the next chapter, when David kills Goliath, he's not even, he's not even extraordinary then. He, he's doing an ordinary job. He's bringing lunchables to his brothers. That's the context for 1 Samuel 17. He's doing an ordinary job. It's the Spirit of God that came upon him and made him extraordinary. When he wrote all the Psalms, he was alone in the pasture or hiding in a cave. David did not become extraordinary because there was anything extraordinary about him, but because God's Spirit rushed upon him mightily. Listen. And the reason David had access to the power of an extraordinary God was because he did not think he was extraordinary in himself, like Saul did. That's the heart of the whole thing right there. The reason that David had access to the power of an extraordinary God was because he did not think he was extraordinary in himself like Saul did. We have a culture that tells us exactly the opposite. And everywhere you turn, you've got a culture that says lift yourself up, make yourself extraordinary. And the church, listen, here's the sad part. The church, just about everywhere you turn, takes those same lies and repeats them in positive, encouraging, Christianese format. That in James McDonald says there are four cultural lies that the world teaches and the church parrots. I think they're worth taking a look at real quick. Four narcissistic lies that the world teaches from the time we're kids that the church, unfortunately, 
just baptizes them and, and says them like, and, and finds little proof text to attach to them like that makes them from God. Right, here's line number one. You are special. There's nobody like you. You're unique. Yes, you are. You're a snowflake. No one like you at all. You know, and you're like, okay, listen, there's a fraction of truth in that. You have a unique fingerprint. Nobody has the same DNA strands that you do. I mean, it's, that's unique. There are, are, are specific experiences that God has given you, but in another, listen, much more profound sense, you are not unique. You are ordinary. You are made out of the same stuff that everybody else is. Yes, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Yes, yes, you are made in the image of God. Yes, God knows you by name and has a specific plan for you. But in another, much more profound sense, you are not set apart from everybody else. You are not unique. You show me anywhere in the Bible, anywhere, that it says to set yourself apart and puff up your ego by talking about how unique and special you are. You're ordinary. The New Testament says, the book of James says that Elijah, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, was a man with a nature just like ours. In other words, he was ordinary. J.D. Greer is not extraordinary. He's not special. He's not unique. There are lots of people with gifts and abilities just like J.D. I'm not above the crowd. I'm ordinary. This whole culture that says, discover your uniqueness, takes an ounce of truth and then mixes it with gallons of just pure narcissism. It's a lie. Number two, here's a second cultural narcissistic lie. You are your work. We define people by their profession. I am a doctor. I am a lawyer. I am a garbage man. David was a shepherd. God looked at a shepherd and did not define him by his profession. He defined him by what God was going to do in and through him. You are not defined by your work. Other people say, well, it's not your work. It's your network. It's not what you do. It's who you know. That's why we name drop all the time. Because I'm going to show you how important I am by all the people that know my name. Right? Here's who follows me on Twitter. Huh? Look at that. How many friends I got on Facebook? Others say, well, no, it's not your, your work. It's not your network. It's your net worth. It's how much, you know, what kind of car you drive, what kind of house you live in. These determine your status. All lies. Here's your third cultural lie. God needs you. God needs you. We always mix this one with some kind of slightly true and then slightly mixed up version of the body of Christ. You're unique. You got a special role to play in the body of Christ. And if you don't play it, nobody's going to be able to play it. God needs you. Here's a newsflash. God does not need anybody. When God started this whole thing we call creation, it was him and nothing. And so now he builds his kingdom through shepherds. God doesn't need anybody's talents. If I don't do it, God will raise up somebody else who will. And I'll just miss the blessing. It's like we learned a few weeks ago with Esther. You remember that? Esther, the queen, Mordecai, her uncle comes to her and says, I'll tell you what, you've been given a chance right now to play a huge role in the kingdom of God. But let me tell you the truth. If you don't raise up, if God doesn't raise you up and you don't obey, God's going to bring salvation from somewhere else. You're just going to miss the blessing and your family's going to die. If I don't do it, God will raise up somebody else who will and me and my family will miss the blessing. God does not need me or you. You're like, well, that doesn't make me feel special. You're not supposed to feel special. That's the point. God is special. Christianity is not God making a big deal out of you. Christianity is God allowing you to make a big deal out of him. Years ago, a, a friend of mine gave me some CDs entitled Cat and Dog Theology. To be totally honest with you, they were, they were pretty hokey and goofy. 
Um, but they built this whole kind of theological concept around the theological differences between cats and dogs. Okay, and there was one or two things I remember from that, and basically it was this. Like, right, the difference in a dog and a cat. Um, when you come home, if you got a dog, right, and, and you open the door, what's the dog do? Oh, the dog's super excited that you're there, right? Jumps up, you know, pants at you, wants to play around. What's the cat do when you come home? You know, kind of. So you're like, maybe I'll, maybe, you know, maybe I'll pay attention to you. If you, uh, um, it, when, when it's time to go out, what's the dog do? The dog goes up, paws the door, right? You open the door, the dog runs out gratefully, comes back. All right, what's the cat do when he wants to go out? Looks at you, looks at the door, you, door, you, door, you, door, like just for you to figure it out, right? And then when you open the door, it's like, you know, maybe I'll do this. There's something else in there I've used for years. I've told you that, that, um, that um, dogs and cats are similar in some ways to men and women. Men are like dogs, women are like cats in the sense of how do you make a dog happy? Three ways. You feed him, you praise him, and you play with him. And I've told people that I counsel in marriage for years that if a wife does those three things with her husband, he'll be totally happy. Feed him, praise him, play with him. Men are just like dogs. Women, on the other hand, are like cats. How do you make a cat happy? Nobody knows. <laughs> Nobody. And whatever worked one time will not work the second time. Just go ahead and write that down. <laughs> All right. But here's, here's the point of the whole thing, okay? With your dog, with your dog, with your dog, your dog's mentality, you can see it in their eyes. The dog's like, you feed me, you play with me, you take care of me. You must be God. The cat says, you feed me, you take care of me. I must be God. <laughs> Theological difference in dogs. Again. Now, please do not send me pictures of your cute little cat and little stories this week explaining why I'm wrong. I do not care to hear about your idol, okay? I'm just throwing this out as something for you to get your mind around, right? So you, you, all right, we're on the same page. The point is, look, the point is we think, we think that we are so special and that's why God loves us. No, God is special. We're a bunch of nobodies who are allowed to worship this wonderfully large somebody. God did not choose David because he was somebody. In fact, it's because he knew he wasn't somebody that God was able to be somebody through him. So that's your third identity lies that God needs you. Here's your fourth one real quick. You got to chase your dreams because your dreams are unique. They're your dreams are you. You got to follow your dreams. Find your dreams within. That's the real you. The only way you can be the real you is to find that dream because that's something unique you got to add to the world. Jesus did not dream of going to the cross. Paul didn't dream of being shipwrecked three times and then beaten and then dying in a prison. They did those things because God had called them to them and because that's what the world needed. You don't change, being a follower of Jesus often means you die to your dreams, not achieve them. See, the point, the point of all this, listen, you're ordinary. Embrace it. Embrace it. Because it's going to set you up for number two. I was in a church once. It was a church that was like, you know, the, the preacher the whole time was talking about how awesome each of us was and how extraordinary we were. And everybody turned to your neighbor and say, you are unique. You're special. I just completely want to reject that right now. We're going to do the opposite. Everybody turn to your neighbor, look at him and go, you are ordinary. Turn to your neighbor and say that. You're ordinary. Now, now look back at them and be like, you too, bro. You are ordinary. A bunch of nobodies, see, who, who were surrounded or worshiping a great big somebody. Number two, because David was ordinary, God could be extraordinary through David. Because David was ordinary, God could be extraordinary through David. 
The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him from that day forward. All the great things in David's life that began to happen, happened as a result of verse 13. What makes God's people amazing throughout the Bible? There is one thing that is consistent about the people that are unbelievably extraordinary in the Bible. It's not that they're theologically, you know, have everything down. It's not that they, you know, are just unbelievable people or singers or preachers. There's one thing that unites all the extraordinary people of the Bible. You want to know what it is? About every single one, it says the Spirit of God rushed upon them or dwelt upon them mightily. What was it that made Pharaoh, get this, take a foreign criminal and make him second in command in Egypt? Did you catch both of those? Foreign and criminal. What would make you take a foreign criminal and in one day make him the second most powerful person in the most powerful empire on earth at the time? Genesis tells you very clearly it's because the spirit of God was on Joseph and everybody could see that. What was it that enabled Samson to be able to kill a thousand Philistines with one jawbone? It wasn't technique. Spirit of God. What was it that enabled Gideon with 300 men to slay the entire Midianite army of 100,000? It says very clearly because the Spirit of God was upon him. What was it that enabled the early church to go into every part of the Roman Empire boldly testifying that Jesus was the only way? Even when it meant it would cost them their lives. What gave them that power? Acts 4 tells you it's when they prayed, they were filled. The Spirit of God rushed upon them like a wind. And the place where they were praying was shaken and they went out and turned the world upside down. The prophet Zechariah summarizes all of the extraordinary people in the Bible with one verse and says, it is not by might, not by power. It is by my spirit, says the Lord. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. It is because David knew that he was ordinary. See, you want to know why I want you to embrace your ordinariness? You want to know why what's really behind this? It's because it's only as you cease trying to be Saul that God can be extraordinary through you. Some of you, your whole life, as I mentioned, you've been trying to become Saul. You've been trying to lift yourself up above everybody else. My friend, listen, God won't share his glory. He won't. So he takes the ordinary, the plain, the outcast, and those are the ones he pours his power into. His miracles come to those who are weak in themselves, but strong in their confidence in God. And only those people who are weak in themselves can be confident in God. Saul's doom was not that he was head and shoulders above everybody. Saul's doom was that he knew it. And because he knew it, he would end up relying on that and not looking to God to be extraordinary in his life. Listen, only one person can be great in your life. Only one. Is that going to be you or is that going to be God? Because all your life, you've been trying to make that you. You've always wanted to be head and shoulders above everybody, distinguished, above the crowd, smart, talented, funny. That's why you're jealous. That's why when people criticize you, it just devastates you because you want to be head and shoulders. You don't want to be nobody. And unfortunately, that is why God's never really going to be able to use some of you. Remember hearing a guy one time named Adrian Rogers, old Southern Baptist preacher who's gone on to be with the Lord now, looking at an audience one time. He said, okay, everybody in the audience, all the valedictorians stand at their feet. A handful of people stood up. He said, salutatorians. They stood up. How many went to college and scholarship? Another handful of people stood up. He said, how about um, if you were, went to college and played athletic sports there? A bunch of people stood up. If you were All-American, stand up. If you, and just went through this list of like 30 different things. If you were uh, the prom queen, if you were the homecoming queen, named off about 40 different things that most of us wish that we could have accomplished. And he says, I got good news and bad news for all you people that are standing up. Good news is you've accomplished some amazing things, and we stand in awe of the things that you have accomplished. The bad news is the people that God will use are seated right beside you. Because 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, God has chosen the weak and the foolish things to confound the mighty. It is because 
Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else, that he would never be mighty in God. Now, some of you guys are like, but J.D., you don't understand. I am extraordinary. I mean, my dad told me I was. And my coaches told me I was. And my professors tell me I am. I'm at college on a full scholarship. I got into med school. Do you know how hard that is? Yes, I understand that you are extraordinary like Saul was. And you might just end up like him. There's nothing wrong with being extraordinary. There's nothing wrong with being set above the crowd. It's when you begin to think that that is what God is going to use. You see, here's the thing. When it comes to building God's kingdom, which is the only thing that really matters, you don't have naturally, none of you, no matter how awesome you are or how far above the crowd you are, it doesn't matter who you are. You do not have what it takes to build God's kingdom. And that's the only thing that really matters here. David, as Israel's king, would one day write Psalm 23. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Right? If the Lord is David's shepherd, what does that make David? A sheep, right? A sheep. That's a pretty remarkable thing for David to say because David's a shepherd. He knows sheep, and I've talked to you this before. Sheep are idiots. Sheep are unintelligent. Sheep, like, they cannot take care of themselves. Right? I mean, you know, it, it, the sheep only look about three inches ahead of them, and they eat the grass there. That's why some sheep, seriously, this happens a lot, will just walk right off the edge of a cliff. You just follow in the grass, you know, fall 75 feet to their death. Someone will step into rivers and get swept away and drowned. They cannot take care of themselves. Just about any animal in the wilderness can have them for lunch. Right? They, they, they do this thing called becoming cast. You know what becoming cast is? Like a beetle when you fall on your back and you can't turn yourself over and you just kick your legs. You know what I mean? Daniel, would you come up here and show everybody what that looks like? No, I'm kidding. Um, sheep get like that. And the shepherd's got to come over and turn them back over. And David's like, that's me. That's me. That's a remarkable thing for a king to say. Saul would never have said that. But because David, listen, had embraced his sheepliness, he could depend on the shepherd to be large in his life. Sheep, if sheep survive and sheep thrive, David knew it's never because of the skill of the sheep. There's no such thing as a proud sheep or a sheep that's, you know, ought to be proud. And sheep all strutting around like, poof, all of a sudden it becomes cast. That just takes away your pride right there. Right? David's like, this is me. If a sheep is going to survive and thrive, it's going to be because of the largeness of the shepherd in his life. What I want from you is I want you to embrace your sheepliness. Yes, some of you are smart. Yes, some of you are extraordinary for sheep. And sheep are idiots. Embrace your sheepliness so that God, the shepherd, can be extraordinary. Again, I repeat, only one person can be seen as great in your life. Only one person can be a somebody. Is that going to be you or is that going to be God? Here's number three. God made David extraordinary in the pasture. God made David extraordinary in the pasture. Let me, um, let me pull a point out of somewhere from the Bible that I'm going to guess you've never heard somebody pull a point out of here, okay? Here's my Bible right here, 1 Samuel 16. Here's verse, down through verse 13. Here's where verse 14 starts. I'm going to pull our next point out of that little white space right there. We're going to pull a whole point out of that white space. Because here's what's going on in that white space. Verse 13, imagine how momentous verse 13 was for David. Samuel, the most important man in Israel, comes to him, calls him by name, says you're chosen to be king, pours oil, it runs down his neck and his back, which is the promise that he will be king. The Spirit of God rushes into him. And where does David go? Do you go immediately into an elite king training program? Does he head down to the department store to try on you know, crowns and robes? People magazine waiting there to interview him. What's it going to be like for you to be king? He goes back to the pasture. That's what's going on in that white space. Verse 19 says that when they came David to find him for his next assignment, he was back with the sheep. 
David goes back to the pasture. And here's what's even more. When things finally do start taking a little shape in David's life, Saul gets jealous of him and spends 10 years chasing him around through the wilderness trying to kill him. Can you hear David go, wait a minute, how oh, was the God who was choosing me king? I mean, God had such clear intentions for me and promise and calling, and now I'm in the pasture cleaning up sheep doo-doo, and I, I mean, chased around the wilderness by this psychotic king. God, where are you? What's wrong? Nothing was wrong. God uses the pasture to prepare his king. You write that down. God uses the pasture to prepare his king. In the pasture, God builds into you the skill and the character. You see, the world and God value two different things in their leaders. So they use two entirely different methods in how they train. Chuck Swindoll says that there are three words that characterize David's time in the pasture. You ought to write these three words in that little white space. These three words are what's going on in that white space. Number one, obscurity. Nobody heard about David. We don't even know what's going on there because there's no, no, no record of it. Obscurity. Nobody paid any attention to him. Second word, monotony. Monotony. David, what did you do today? I watched sheep. I went from there to there. And then two or three of them went over there. What else did you do? I played around this little leather strap. I've actually gotten pretty good at it. I can knock that apple off like like 55 yards. You want to see? No. What else you do? I played the harp. No one in the electric harp. It was just the harp. I got so bored, I wrote some songs. You want to hear them? No. Anything else? Oh, you know, well, a couple months ago, there was a lion and a bear that tried to attack the sheep, and I killed them with my bare hands. Can anybody verify that, David? No. I don't really care monotony obscurity right here's your third word reality reality it's in the pasture that god's developing david's skill that slingshot that's going to come in handy a few years later those songs that harp stuff david's going to become the most famous songwriter of all time in the pasture god develops david's courage in my favorite scene in the life of david which we'll get to next week David gives the ultimate trash talking that you will find anywhere when Goliath comes out and says, who are you, you little dog? And David looks back at him and says, you know what, man? I can take this slingshot and I've knocked it through the head of a lion and a bear, you big nine-foot lump of nothing, and I'm going to put this thing through your face just so you'll know that God is God. Where did he learn to trash talk like that? In the pasture. That's where he learns. God developed David's humility. Ain't nothing like develop humility in you when you have to clean up sheep poop. And David remembered that after he was anointed to be king, that this is what God had him doing so that he would never get large in his eyes like Saul did. He learned patience. He learned to trust and wait on God and to wait on God to fulfill his plan in there. All these things were learned in the pasture, not in the palace. Psalm 78, 72 describes David like this. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Y'all, those things, the upright heart and the skillful hand, those come from the pasture. They don't come from the palace. Church, this is still what God does. See, that's why I'm telling you all this. Mom, what'd you do today? Change diapers. Cooked a meal. Would everybody appreciate it? No. Why'd you do it, son? Colossians 3, 23. Whatever I do, I should do with all my might to the Lord. Who knows what God's going to do with that kid that you're raising? Who knows what God does with your ordinary faithfulness? Don't you see what he's doing with David? Businessman, businesswoman, what'd you do today? I worked a dead-end job. My boss is a jerk. Who knows what God is doing? Through an ordinary faithfulness. Right, college student, what'd you do? I studied, went to class, did some stupid coursework, 
Learned some names of some people I'm going to forget and did some calculus I'm never going to use. How do you know God's not using that to teach you integrity, to teach you faithfulness, working on your character and your patience? Don't despise your pastor. Seminary student, what are you doing? I'm learning a bunch of church history guys that I just don't even like anymore. And I hold the door at the Summit Church. That's my ministry. I had a friend, one of my best friends, his name is Bruce. He's an elder here at our church, works over at Southeastern. Some of you know him. Uh, Bruce, Dean of the College, Dr. Ashford. Um, Bruce, uh, when we were in seminary, you should tell him about the story. Tell him I told you. He told me not to tell you. I'll tell you anyway. Um, Bruce, uh, when we were in seminary, both of us felt like our calling was to save the world. That was on our business card. You know, J.D. Greer, save the world. That's my calling. And uh, so we were all forever taking these, like, preaching things. We were going out preaching everywhere, and our classwork started to suffer. And uh, the president of our seminary pulled in Bruce. He didn't do this to me because Bruce was a lot more hard-headed than me. Um, he pulls in Bruce, and he, he sits him down, and he, he reaches under his desk, and he pulls out a pail filled with sand and a little um, kid's shovel and said, Bruce, for the next week, everywhere you go, you're going to carry this sand in the pail and the little shovel, and you're going to put it on your desk when you study, and you're going to take it to class, and when you sleep, it's going to be beside your bed. When you shower, it's going in the shower with you. When you use the bathroom, it's going to sit on the toilet there with you. Everywhere you are this next week, this pail is going to be with you. And Bruce says, why? Why? He says, so when people ask you why you're carrying that pail, you're going to tell them that when God called Moses to lead Israel, he didn't put him at the head of an army. He sent him into the desert for 40 years. And when God called Paul to be his apostle to the Gentiles, he didn't send him on an evangelistic crusade. He put him in the desert, Galatians chapter 2, for three years. And this sand's going to remind you of that. And when God called David, he put him back in the pasture. And if it's not too good for Paul and for David and for Moses, it's not too good for you. And you're going to have to take the time that God has you in the pasture and realize that God uses the pasture to create the character in he that he wants to create. Listen to me, don't waste your pasture god and the world have two different ways of training their leaders and so they because they're after two different things don't despise your pasture some of you you're, you're blowing it you really are because you're impatient you're complaining right you know some of you it's not that you're 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 just filling it up with nothingness you go see movies all the time and you you, you fill it up with tv every night david is in the pasture listening and hearing from god He's spending time with God. God is teaching his heart the Psalms. Don't just clutter up your pasture with mind-numbing TV and ridiculous stuff. This is a key time in your life. You'll never get back. God uses the pasture to prepare his king. Don't waste it. The pasture and the wilderness of suffering are the laboratories that God uses for forming in you the heart that he wants. You want to be a person after God's own heart? Then don't despise your pasture. Here's number four. Jesus would be the truly ordinary extraordinary. Jesus would be the truly ordinary extraordinary. I'm do this one really quickly. I try to teach you guys this a lot, so hopefully you, you'll know right where I'm going with this. We read these stories wrongly when we read them as if they're all about us. I, I read a lot of evangelical you know, commentators on this, on this passage who try to explain that the real meaning of this is that if you will hang on long enough in your pasture, God will make you king of something one day. Uh-huh. Or, or they'll try to say, you know what, the real point of this is you should never judge a book by its cover because God looks at the heart. But, like this is some kind of glorified Disney movie. That's basically what they, they treat it as. These things are not about you. These things are primarily about a much greater story that you get to be a part of. 
See, listen to the details of the story. David, listen, looks ordinary. David is then anointed, and then the Spirit of God rushes on him. But then he goes back into the pasture and will spend the next 15 years of his life in obscurity and suffering. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Jesus was a carpenter. He had a regular blue-collar job. He was not a rising ruler. He wasn't even a rabbi. He would never have been on any who's who list or who's who to watch next list. He was 30 years old, and he was single with no career to speak of. And then he was anointed. In fact, the word that's used for anointed in, in 1 Samuel 16 is the word Mashiach, from which we get the word Messiah, which gets translated into Greek as Christ, Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name, it's his title. He's the ultimately anointed one. Then he's taken by the Spirit. Where? Not to the palace in Jerusalem. He's not taken to Rome. No, he's taken into the wilderness where he will be tested for 40 days. Jesus' time on earth is not spent in power and privilege. It's spent in obscurity, in suffering. It's spent with the cross. But the reality was that God would use his life of suffering and God would use his cross to save the world. The main point of all this, y'all, listen, is not that if you hang on, God will put you on the throne of Israel. That seat's already taken. The point is, because Jesus got there, you don't have to. Because your story is now wrapped up in his Right, see? Listen, write this down. The gospel is not that God will make you victorious in this life. The gospel is that we will share in Jesus' victorious position. Because Jesus got to the throne, and because my story is now wrapped up in his, I know that ultimately whatever is happening in my life, God is using in the same way that God used David and God used Jesus, and God is using my pasture and my wilderness to bring out his greatest works. Does that make sense? Does that connect with you? Because my story belongs to Jesus now, because mine is in his. I can be sure that in the pasture, God is working through me his greatest work. You know what the, the worst part of the pasture is? You know this, if you've been in it. The worst part of the pasture is feeling like you've been forgotten by God. God, what happened? God, I mean, I mean, you, you, you're calling and, and all this stuff, and I'm in a pasture, and I'm in a wilderness. God, where are you? Gee, listen. Jesus went through the wilderness of suffering and was forgotten by God, in fact, forsaken by God, so that when you were in the pasture and you were in the wilderness, you would never have to worry about that. And in the pasture and the wilderness, you look to Jesus, what he went through for you, and you say, because he's on the throne of Israel and I shared his victory, I can know that in my pasture and my wilderness, I've not been forgotten by God. In fact, what God is doing is using my pasture and my wilderness the same way he used Jesus's and David's. And God's going to bring his greatest things in my life out of that pasture, not out of my palace. So I can rejoice in the pasture because those it feels like I've been forgotten by God. I have not been forgotten by God because I am the son of a king and my position is secure. And God is watching me the way that a king would watch his prince that is developing. Let me kind of close here with an illustration that I don't, I hope it doesn't bother some of you. But I, I just say this because 90% of you have seen this movie. Um, the first Harry Potter movie, or the first Harry Potter book. If you choose not to let your kids read this for reasons, I, I understand that. I'm not trying to say that you're wrong on that. I'm just saying most people have seen this movie. Um, first Harry Potter movie, you've got Harry Potter, who's an extraordinary individual, okay, who's living a very ordinary life. And, and he's just an ordinary kid, but he feels totally forgotten because he's in the worst living situation ever. And he feels like everything's out of control. But every once in a while, something will break into his life, like a, you know, a bunch of owls flying through his house or you know, any number of different things that are showing you that even though it looks like he's forgotten, he is being watched and prepared so that at just the right time. He can be brought to where he needs to go. You see, for the Christian, it's much greater than what was going on for Harry Potter. You might be in a place where you feel like you are forgotten, but you have the assurance every once in a while something breaks through and says, you're the son or daughter of a king. 
And God is preparing you, and at the right time, he's going to put you exactly where you need to go. What you've got to do is trust Jesus. And you've got to embrace his story and realize that because you're in his, he's now working through your pastures and wilderness. Follow this. David was anointed, filled with the Spirit, then went into the pasture. Jesus was anointed, filled with the Spirit, driven into the wilderness. You, 2 Corinthians 1.22, are anointed, filled with the Spirit. Guess where you're headed? And God will bring the same thing out of your pasture he brought out of there. So don't waste it. Don't waste it. Trust God in it. Why don't you bow your heads if you would. Have you ever received Jesus' victory as yours? The gospel is that Jesus Christ came to earth to save you so that your life would not be meaningless and pointless. You can find new life in him. If you've never received Jesus, I hope today before you leave, you will talk to that person who invited you or before you go to bed tonight. I hope that you will receive what Jesus Christ has offered you to rescue you, to absorb your sin, and to give you purpose and hope in a direction. Father, I pray for those in this room that have never received Jesus. I pray that today would not end before they have been reconciled to the Father through him. And Father, I pray for those in this room that are in a pasture. I pray that they would trust you. And they would see the greatest works that you will do come out of this pasture. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.